Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for granting us the Holy Scriptures, which you have breathed out so that they are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We pray that you would now use the preaching of this, your inspired word, among us now, so that your people might be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You'll please open your Bibles now to our sermon text. We'll be looking this morning at Zechariah chapter 2. You can find this in your pew Bibles on page 793. So Zechariah chapter 2. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him. And said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Last week, we looked at Zechariah's second vision of the four horns of the nations, which had scattered God's people. These were then countered by the four craftsmen, which terrified and cast down the horns of those nations. As we saw, those craftsmen represented the humble craftsmen who were faithfully building God's temple in Jerusalem. And through this work, God would then come dwell in the midst of his people and then overthrow all his people's enemies. The third vision, which we're looking at this morning, picks up from where we left off last week and it builds upon it. For it is not only the temple that needs to be rebuilt, but the entire city of Jerusalem. And a rebuilt city needs to be filled with people and, as we see here, also animals. 
But most importantly of all, it needs to be inhabited by God himself, his glory dwelling in the midst of his people. And that is the central promise here in this third vision. Now, God's presence is not a new promise. We've already seen it several times here in the book of Zechariah. What is new here in the third vision is not the mere presence of God, but the presence of God dwelling in his glory, God's glory in our midst. Glory. Isn't that what the human heart longs for? Perhaps we don't always realize that's what we're looking for. Or perhaps we look for it in all the wrong places. But glory is what we seek. Glory is what we were made for. That's the first question and answer of our, of our shorter catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is to give God glory and to bask in and enjoy his glory in our midst. And that is what is promised to God's people here in this passage before us. But we do need to dig in a bit to understand what this is saying and how these prophecies are to be fulfilled. For it's not just a promise for Zechariah's day, but as we'll see, there is a partial fulfillment then and then a greater fulfillment to come. So we'll cover this passage in three parts this morning. First, the vision proper, the measuring of the walls. Second, the call to flee for judgment is coming on Babylon. And third, the call to sing, to join, and then to be silent. So first we'll begin with the vision proper, the measuring of the walls. Verse 1, I lifted my eyes and I saw and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and what is its length. We saw back in Zechariah's first vision, the Lord's prophecy that a measuring line would be stretched out over Jerusalem. And here we see in the third vision that's coming to pass. What's the significance of this? What's the significance of a measuring line? A measuring line was used to mark out the corners of a building to see where to lay the foundations But here, when speaking of an entire city, it would be used to mark out the boundaries of the city, to mark the place to build the walls. Since the walls of Jerusalem were broken down when the city was destroyed, now that the people have returned from exile, they've been living without any protection, living in an unwalled city. To rebuild the walls would be a major step to restoring their security. But the real significance of the measuring line is not just the walls. This is a symbol that the entire city of Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. Where would this man mark the boundaries? His understanding seems to be that the rebuilt city would be just like the old city. There's no growth, no vision, no ambition. And soon we see that God has something else in mind. Continuing in verse 3. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run! Say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because of the multitude of the people and livestock in it. And I will be to her 
a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Here we see that the angel with Zechariah is sent by another angel to run quickly to the young man with the measuring line to tell him that his task of marking the place for the walls to be built, it's not needed. Walls of stone did not protect the city when the Babylonians came, and that's not what's needed now either. Simply measuring and marking the edges of the current city, that's not going to be large enough. God has a different plan, a far greater vision for Jerusalem. For Jerusalem will be a mighty city, overflowing with both people and livestock. And no wall will be needed, for God himself will provide the protection. As the Lord declares, I myself will be a wall of fire all around. The Lord's holy presence is associated with fire in several places in Scripture. He appeared to Abraham as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch when he made his covenant with him. Later, he appeared to Moses in the burning bush that was not consumed. Then after bringing Israel out of bondage in Egypt, he led them through the wilderness and protected them as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Then when they came to Mount Sinai, the Lord descended on the mountain as a consuming fire. This wall of fire protecting Jerusalem especially reminds us of how that pillar of cloud and fire protected the Israelites from the Egyptian army as they crossed the Red Sea. It also makes us think of the words of Psalm 125:2, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. The Lord not only surrounds his people, as he also says, I will be the glory in her midst. As I already mentioned in the introduction, the Lord has already spoken several times in this book of his presence with his people. This is the first mention in the book of his glory. What is the Lord's glory? There are three main aspects to this concept of glory. The Hebrew word translated glory can also be translated weighty. Heavy. Something that is glorious has a weight. And God being the I am that I am, the self existent one, the creator on whom all other things depend, is by this very definition the very pinnacle of glory. So, weightiness is the first aspect of glory. The second aspect of glory, perhaps the one you are more familiar with, is radiance. Or splendor. Glory shines brightly. That's what we saw in the New Jerusalem. It had no need for a light or lamp or even the sun, for God's glory filled it with light. You can think of gold, that precious metal, being glorious because it is both heavy and it shines with golden radiance. And there's the third aspect that glory goes along with honor and praise. We think of God gaining glory through his mighty deeds as people respond to them with praise. So first, God is glorious in himself. Second, he displays his glory. He makes his glory known. And third, he receives glory when people praise his name. 
Now here in this passage is primarily in that second sense that is meant God revealing his glory as he dwells in the midst of his people. There will be a sense of awe at his weighty presence, a perception of his radiance, splendor shining out. Now God often appeared in the Old Testament in what came to be called the glory cloud, what the rabbis called God's Shekinah glory. This refers to his presence in the pillar of cloud and fire in the wilderness, his presence settling on Mount Sinai, or when he filled the tabernacle, it filled with smoke and fire. Then later, he filled the temple with his glorious presence, all this referring to as the glory cloud. Now that the exiles have returned, God has returned with them, but so far they have not seen his glorious presence. But now he promises that he will be the glory in their midst. Now, following the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah, calling them to build the temple, the people were faithful in the work. The temple was completed about five years after their prophecies. Now, the expectation is that when the temple is completed, at the dedication ceremony, the temple would be filled with the glorious presence of God, just like the tabernacle and the first temple. There's only one problem. There's no record of this occurring. And surely the lack of it happening was quite notable. And so we must ask, when was this promise fulfilled? I'm going to leave that question question hanging because the answer becomes clear as we continue forward in the passage. We'll come back to it. Let's continue now to the next section of our passage. Second point this morning, flee for judgment comes on Babylon. The angel continues delivering the word of the Lord now with a message to those who are still living in the lands of exile. Meaning verses 6 and 7. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. This message begins with this rousing call to action. Up, up. It's a summons to those who are still dwelling in Babylon. To flee from the land of their exile, to return to Jerusalem. Because God was about to bring judgment on that nation. Now here the Lord is calling Babylon the land of the north, which is a common title in scripture for them. A common title in scripture for it. Even though technically it was to the east of Jerusalem, the route to go to it goes first to the north before then turning east. And so from the perspective of Israel, it's thought of as the land of the north. Then in verse 7, he refers to the daughter of Babylon, referring to the people of Babylon in whose midst they were dwelling. God also says he's the one who had spread abroad or scattered his people, even though he, we know he used Babylon as his tool for this. But now he's calling them to return, to escape from the lands of their exile before judgment comes upon these lands. And then we read of this judgment in verses 8 and 9. Now, verse 8 is actually one of the most difficult verses in the book to parse and interpret. So here I want to read a more interpretive translation. 
For thus says the Lord of hosts, seeking after his own glory, the Lord has sent me, that is, Zechariah, with a message to the nations who plundered you, because he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. That is, they have violated something deeply precious to me. The Lord had permitted Babylon to take his people into exile, but now they had gone too far. They had violated his beloved people, the apple of his eye. And so now he was sending a message through Zechariah that their time was up. So verse 9, Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. The Lord merely needs to wave his hand and the mighty Babylons will be, Babylonians will become plunder for their servants. This, of course, lines up with what we saw last week. The casting down of the horns of the nations. The end result will be that they will know that the Lord had sent Zechariah, his prophet. There's actually an allusion here to Israel's delivery out of bondage in Egypt. For you recall how they had plundered the Egyptians leaving with large quantities of gold, silver, and clothing. And how the great plagues were sent so that the Egyptians would know that the Lord was the one true God and that Moses was his servant. And now the Lord will do the very same thing to the Babylonians, with the Lord overturning them and their servants plundering them. And in the end, God will receive all the glory. Now let's consider for a moment, application for ourselves. It may be hard at first to understand why so many Jews had remained in the land of their exile until you take a minute to consider their situation. When they had arrived in Babylon, they were penniless. But Jeremiah had written a letter to the exiles telling them that they had 70 years before their return. And so they were to settle down there Jeremiah wrote, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Jeremiah 29, 5-6. Now they had taken his advice. And 70 years had passed. They had their houses, their gardens, their growing families. It was not an easy thing to leave all this and go back to the ruins of Judah and Jerusalem and start all over again. The problem was that they had now grown comfortable living in Babylon. But now destruction was about to fall on that nation. It was just like the situation that Lot had found himself in. He had chosen Sodom because it rested in a fertile valley. And he had grown wealthy living there in Sodom. But it was also a place of wicked immorality. And then when God's judgment was coming upon it and it was time to flee, he found himself reluctant to do so. And now the same exhortation comes to us today to flee from Babylon, flee from the worldliness which is all around us. We cannot grow too comfortable 
in the world in which we live. It's true, we are called to be in the world, but not of the world. Rather, we are to live as strangers and exiles here on the earth. Yes, you may have 70 years, even a little more, to live on this world, to live on this earth. And you will need a house to live in, a garden or a job, some way to feed your family, a wife and a family. You must settle down to some extent, but you must never grow too comfortable with the world, specifically the worldliness around you. As John writes in Revelation 18, 4 and 5, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. This is just before the final fall of Babylon, a few verses later in Revelation 18. And as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7.31, For the present form of this world is passing away. And so we cannot cling too tightly to this world. Flee from Babylon and find shelter within Zion among God's people for your citizenship is in heaven. This then brings us to the third part of our passage this morning. Sing, join, and be silent. Now having addressed God's people still living in the lands of exile, the Lord turns to addressing those living in in and around Jerusalem. Verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Here the Lord calls the people of Jerusalem to sing and rejoice. For he comes to dwell in their midst. And this truly is an occasion for rejoicing. We have a similar call in Isaiah 12, 5 and 6. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. God's people are always to be a singing people, even as we continue to be today. And we do need to carefully parse the wording here. We saw in chapter 1 that God had already returned to Jerusalem with mercy. But here his dwelling, specifically his dwelling, is still future. For dwelling refers to his glorious presence in the tabernacle or the temple. And so this awaits the completion of the temple. It's also closely tied to what follows in verse 11, which starts with the word and. So the two verses go together. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me, has sent me to you. And first note that this will occur on that day. And this first use of the fra- and this first use of the phrase that day, uh, this is the first use of the phrase that day, which we'll encounter twenty times in this book of Zechariah. So what is that day? This is the day of the Lord's coming which will mean judgment for the Lord's enemies, but salvation for his people. It's the day of the coming of the Davidic king and of the new covenant. And we'll be on the lookout for this phrase that day as we proceed through the book. But here we see that on that day, 
Many nations will join themselves to the Lord and will become his people. To join oneself to another refers to creating an intimate covenantal bond. It can mean marriage or, as we see here, it's reflected in the fact that they will become God's own people. That's the classic covenantal language. I will be your God. You will be my people. And now this is applied to the Gentiles. This prophecy of the expansion of God's kingdom to include Gentiles will be reinforced later in the book, in chapter 8 and again in chapter 14. Isaiah also uses the same terminology to speak of foreigners joining themselves to the Lord. Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That doesn't mean there's no longer any place for the Jews as the Lord continues to speak in verse 12. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Interestingly, this here in verse 12 is the only reference in all of Scripture to Israel as the Holy Land. And we're accustomed to this terminology today. It's the only place this is used in the whole Bible. However, it's a similar, a similar phrase is used in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is commanded to take off his sandals because he is standing on holy ground. What makes the land holy is the presence of the one true holy God. As we saw that the Lord will again choose Jerusalem back in 117, and it's repeated here. So the incorporation of the nations among his people does not diminish the importance of Jerusalem and Judah, which still stands at the center of God's plans. And now with these clear prophecies of the incorporation of the Gentiles to be fulfilled on that day, we can come back to that question that we left hanging earlier. When will these things be fulfilled? In particular, when will God's glorious presence return to fulfill fulfill his people in Jerusalem? There was a partial fulfillment of these promises soon after Zechariah's day. Jerusalem was rebuilt. Its population greatly expanded. It was protected by God. And in time, physical walls were even rebuilt by Nehemiah. But no Gentiles were welcomed in. No glory filled the temple or the city. This was awaiting that day. The true fulfillment of these things awaited the coming of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ's coming, the Lord himself truly came to dwell again in the midst of his people. John may have been thinking of these very prophecies when he wrote, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14 And with Christ's coming, not only has God's glory once again to dwell, come to dwell in the midst of his people, 
But then, through the preaching of the gospel, going out through all the nations, the nations began streaming into God's people. And with this, we start to see the true sense of what it means for Jerusalem to be a city without walls. For that is what God's people have now become. The church is the true spiritual Zion, ever growing, ever expanding, like leaven spreading throughout the whole lump of dough, going out to all the ends of the earth. You can't build walls around God's kingdom, for it is spreading throughout every nation. And yet, inside of every Christian, God's Holy Spirit, God's glory dwells. But even this, Even this is not the end of the story. For there is another great day to come when Christ returns, when we will see Jerusalem in its final form. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is the Lamb. Here we see the final, eternal fulfillment of Zechariah's vision, when God is the glory in the midst of his people forever. We have only a small taste of this now, but there we will enjoy its fullness forever. Now let's consider this one final verse of the chapter. Verse 13 opens with the command, be silent. Hebrew word is hus. It functions very similar to the word hush or shh in English. Be Silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. All flesh here refers to all humanity. It emphasizes our frailty in contrast to the Lord's almighty power. The Lord has roused himself, not because he ever sleeps, but because he is now on the move to bring salvation for his people and judgment upon his enemies. And here the Lord's holy dwelling is referring to his heavenly dwelling place. Now this verse, it gives us a sense of deep foreboding, as if you have roused a slumbering lion. That's all right if you're the lion's cub who will be protected, but you are in deep trouble if you're the one intruding into the lion's den. There's an interesting contrast here, because just two verses earlier, there was a call to sing and to rejoice, but now all flesh is called to a profound and utter silence. And this isn't a contradiction. Even in a worship service, we have times of singing and rejoicing and times of silence, either for prayer and reflection or to simply sit in awe of our glorious God. The passage here, it does close with this call to silence as we recognize the Lord is on the move and so all flesh should wait in silence. From our perspective, after the coming of Christ, we know that the, that day, which was future for Zechariah, has already come. 
But we are awaiting another day, the final day of the Lord when Christ will return, when we will dwell with him in the new Jerusalem, with God's full glory revealed in our midst. That is the day we are waiting for, the day we are longing for. That is the day we are also working towards as we continue to build God's temple, as we serve Christ, serve one another, and proclaim the gospel here and to the ends of the earth. We don't know when that day will come, but we do pray, Lord, come, for we long to behold your glory. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you for you are the glorious one. We praise you for your glory displayed through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. You are the glory in our midst. You are our refuge and our protector. And we thank you that you are building your church, the city without walls expanding throughout the entire world. Help us as we seek to be the instruments in your hands, serving you in this great work, building up one another, sharing the good news with those around us, and persevering in our faith. Help us, Father, not to grow comfortable in this world around us, but to truly live as strangers and sojourners in the world, with our hearts set on the world to come. And we do pray continually, come, Lord Jesus, we long to see your glory. Amen.